Hi, this is Cody Dagalorians. This is Neil Dagalorians. And welcome to another episode of Bearded Fruit. Can you hear the compressor and noise gate in my voice? <laughs> yeah. Um, so because of the uh, the pandemic, uh, I have been working from home and a lot of my work has been uh, around creating content and doing things, uh, virtual events online. So thanks to the pandemic, I have been able to justify the purchase of a new MacBook Pro. We're so fancy now. We're in we're in the year 2020 with technology that matches finally. Uh, I know we have we have uh, cool technology. So thanks, COVID. Um. So right now we are uh, inching up on mid May, and that means Pride Month is right around the corner. Yay! Yeah, uh, June is Pride Month, and that's uh, just a couple of weeks away. But because of uh, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a global pandemic. What? Yeah, there's a global pandemic. Since when? Uh, <laughs> March. Well, for no, for much longer than that, but uh, certainly. December of last yeah. year. Uh, but yeah, so COVID-19 and the ongoing epidemic, uh, pandemic around it has canceled Pride events that were scheduled for June all around the globe, along with really like everything else in a large scale event format. So... For June, Pride organi- organizers, like almost everybody else in events on the planet, has been uh, looking into ways to take these live events that we have become incredibly accustomed to and these live events that we care about and finding a way to turn them into virtual events using digital platforms. And Pride organizers have uh, been doing that. Um, so I found this one Pride event that's uh, going to be taking place everywhere. It's actually kind of cool. It's called Global Pride, and it will take place on June 27th, and it will be happening virtually in cities all around the world. And the effort is being spearheaded by an organization called Interpride, which is a group of international Pride organizers from all around the globe. And uh, what they're going to be doing is hosting this online event. It'll be a 24-hour online event. And it will peak in certain time zones all around the world. And when you're in that time zone, the pride organizations from that time zone and from that area are going to be uh, handling the programming and creating digital and virtual events that you can take, that you can participate in uh, during that time. And as you move into a different time zone, new organizations will be presenting uh, new programming and, uh, and that'll go on for 24 hours as it circles the entire globe. Yeah, that's that's interesting. When we think about what Global Pride was last year, uh, they did it in New York, and it was the big, big fifty-year, um, fifty-year anniversary of the Stonewall uh, riots, revolution, whatever you want to call it. And now they have to figure out a new digital version. Um, it's it's pretty interesting. But one of the things that I saw that I thought was also interesting and worth talking about because I feel like it goes into a greater narrative. I saw. Connecticut Pride is host is is doing something very similar and they called for is is essentially a call for entries trying to get people to like submit their performances or like things that they they can do over video for Pride. And what made me interested in it was actually the framing of it. I mean, A, they're like we're doing the first ever we're doing the 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 first ever Connecticut virtual Pride and they're making it sound like it's their choice and i'm like y'all it's not your like (laughs) it's either this or nothing but secondly was the framing of the call which they were looking for family friendly acts and i kind of reacted to that in a way i was thinking about and this has been a very long-standing conversation especially 
in the in the last five to ten years about whether or not Pride should be family friendly or not. And I just thought, you know, we're talking about a digital space where really you can do anything, and yet it's being limited by this notion of family friendliness. And I don't understand why we can't have both. I don't understand why there can't be a separate family-friendly pride and then a more politically radical queer pride um, somewhere else. And it just seems it seems kind of short-sighted. So I'm interested in seeing what Global Pride is doing in response to that. Like not in response to that, but in, in terms of how they are looking for content and what they're thinking of. Are they thinking of a very family-friendly event or are they thinking of something else? And it's just something I'm thinking about because on one hand, yes, kids and families should be accepted at, at, at Pride festivals, but on the other hand, that really limits what you can do in terms of expression, in terms of connection, in terms of the statement or messages you're trying to send. So I'm interested in seeing what these digital pride festivals do that kind of toe that line or dance that line or if they just explicitly go one way or another well i think what's sort of interesting about the notion of these digital pride events and it's not just happening at global pride or connecticut these are also popping up in cities everywhere and uh, if you look around the country at local organizations that do serve the lgbtq community they are also have they've also been creating digital events where where their normal constituency which would have gone to a live thing are being able to hang out online i think it's interesting to also look outside of that around some of the other things that have been happening in terms of uh, a queer gathering like RuPaul's Drag Con in LA became uh, I think a three-day virtual event where they were able to feature performances pre-recorded performances by uh, queens from RuPaul's Drag Race through over the course of three days and it streamed live on YouTube. Um, you've seen uh, a lot of, of drag performers particularly putting on digital drag festivals that uh, i know bitch pudding from dragula did one very early on with a lot of those queens but i've also seen rockham sakura had her first like solo digital drag show and a lot of a lot of the in these things that would have normally taken place in uh in a gay bar or at a pride event are now happening uh online and again the question is access i mean who is the who who is the audience for these events and who is welcome and who isn't and i know with um bitch puddin and the other digital drag stuff that's been really big and really promoted a lot of that is happening on twitch and twitch has very specific guidelines in terms of what you can and can't do so that alone is already its own inherent kind of not censorship i that's too far but it's its, its own inherent filter but from there, though, I mean, the queen's name is Bitch Puddin. Like, that inherently is not family-friendly from the get-go. So those kinds of drag events are not necessarily aimed at a certain audience. Um, so the question is, who's the audience for this? And again, thinking about even digital pride festivals, again, the, there's an access issue to that. That, that. That's not accessible to everyone. It's not accessible to a good number of, of people. And so thinking, I mean, Pride also has its own, in general, Pride festivals all around the country have issues with accessibility and who is truly feeling welcome in those spaces and who isn't. And it's typically a, a white male audience, a white cis male queer audience uh, that kind of congregate, for the most part, in, in very generalized Pride festivals. 
So it's, it's again, it's kind of like, okay, this is that for that audience then. So then how do we celebrate pride if digital spaces are not accessible? How do we um, create this sense of pride without requiring Zoom or Twitch or whatever? How can we continue to celebrate without being in person, but then with also without having access to these digital tools? Because just it's simply inaccessible to a lot of people. Well, maybe it's it's good just to sort of maybe suss out some of those things more more uh, succinctly. Uh, that what's interesting is that the this conversation around what a digital pride event looks like under these very specific global conditions uh, amplifies, I think a lot of the questions that people have about pride in general and a lot of the conversation around what pride events have become. Um, and so I think like I, I think there's like an interesting if, if let's take one at a, maybe take them suss them apart a little bit so it's not a big like jumble of questions and ideas uh, looking at pride as uh, a family accessible event in a digital space um, I'm not saying that I agree with the idea but I understand where that idea would come from because if you're experiencing it digitally then that is now in in more homes than a pride event would have been in otherwise it isn't now you know pride was in in a lot of places it's sort of localized stages it's in very specific places uh it, it isn't literally available in every home at any time and for and then for perpetuity if they if they allow the material to stay up online that event is then now available and readily accessed all over um so i can understand that pull because now you your event is now able to reach a lot more people um but should uh, the question being i guess should pride be a kid friendly event i think there should be kid friendly prides i don't think kid i don't think pride should be a kid friendly event i think there should be s separate designations and i think part of that comes not only from this notion of let's get queer and radical and political but also another part that worries me is the very real fact that grooming exists um and even though it's it's a very harmful queer trope um that there are older queers who prey upon younger younger queers or younger people in general even though that's a dangerous trope that's also a thing that happens um and it's a thing that happens in the straight community as well of course but there isn't I mean, what what's the what's the straight equivalent of 4-H fair? Like, I, I guess, um, but there isn't an equivalent of a a space that is sexually charged, that is that is focused on sexuality like Pride is. I think Pride is inherently focused on sexuality because and gender because that is what unites us. It's what we do with our bodies. It's what we do with our bodies with other bodies. And that is what inherently makes somebody queer. Uh, the choices around their bodies that go against heteronormative expectations. And so it inherently is something that is not necessarily family friendly. Even though queer couples have families even though queer couples have kids i think the entire concept of queerness and celebrating queerness it all boils down to this notion of what we're doing with our bodies and what we're doing with our bodies is very sexual and very charged so i think there's there's some kind of tension there which is why it's always existed this tension between family friendliness and and queerness 
there's always been a bit of a tension. That's the reason it's it's part of the reason why people who argue that you shouldn't bring these issues up in high schools and public high schools, that's where that's coming from. It's coming from a very similar place, misguided as it may be. But it's it's also a reality, I think. I think it's a reality that needs to be thought of, and it's a reality that needs to be um, very specifically um, considered. So there should be some kind of family and youth-oriented pride separate from a more general adult pride. I really, truly believe that. Well, I think it's you're interesting that with this, this is an echo of a, the conversation we had a bit last week about drag race and queer spaces. Uh, again, what I feel like you're talking about is this tension between the pull of assimilation and the pull of remaining radical and independent. Oh, we talking about poles, honey? Yes, yeah, this is a polarity. This is um, a pole-friendly space. Yeah, and and I I I don't know. I'm as I was thinking through that conversation from last week, and now thinking through this here, it it seems that 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 is very that's sort of like in the DNA of where we are as a community at this particular moment, we're at a really interesting place where um, those both, both of those pulls and the pull to both of those things is really strong. And there is, there is, there is a very good argument for assimilation because of what we are seeing. It's allowed queer people, the lives that they've been allowed to lead and the opportunities that they've had. But there's also that very, that very, true and and i think very valid argument about remaining as radical as possible because queer lives are radical acts at the core it's a uh, juliana huxtable um when she was asked about like what was uh what was the, the deepest shade you've ever thrown like existing in the world yeah yeah and 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 the the, the notion of just like uh it's the argument that I always when people say that they're not political, that they don't like to deal with political things, and when they're when they're queer, it's always it's funny to me because it's like, well, your queerness is is political. It exists in the world, and it is against the mainstream of the world. So it is it is fundamentally political. You are political. Did you hear that, Gigi? Good. <laughs> don't. Shame. Are you listening, Gigi? Good. This is a call out. She's gonna take off her tailored coat and come for you and reveal a stop killing trans women behind <laughs> uh in sequins yeah, yeah. And, and i think you know it's we can have both and we should have both and i think the problem is is that we don't have both we have one or the other and again i think that's the problem with this line of thinking it's a very binaristic and a very dichotomized sense of thinking that is ultimately just not productive it doesn't think about the options even thinking about rupaul's drag con <laughs> like they only streamed rupaul or rupaul oriented music um because that's what they had the license to so they could continue to monetize the the views of that again queerness as a commodity woohoo but that was a way that they limited themselves whereas at DragCon in real life that's not a thing it's it's performing whatever i assume i don't know i've never been there maybe it is like that at dragon maybe it really is just the rupaul show but i think there's there's limitations to certain digital spaces that are inherent i mean you can't show nudity on youtube either which fine like that's their platform they are allowed to make their own rules the same with twitch they are allowed to make their own rules and these inst these institutions that are creating these and and 
organizing these digital pride space like they are allowed to make their own rules and, and designate them that's fine i can also be very critical of the fact that they are they are thinking too small they're thinking not well enough um they aren't truly considering and grasping the nature of not only this current political moment but also this current digital moment they're not thinking broadly enough and instead they're thinking about how can we appease as many people as possible and that's my problem with it they're thinking about appeasement and assimilation as opposed to thinking about that as well as progressiveness and and futurism like they're they're not allowing themselves the the room and the grace to really explore what this could mean so you're not the only person who's thinking that damn um, skipping <laughs> because we write there is a longtime lgbtq and aids activist and northrup uh who was one of the people who helped organize last year's queer liberation march the the sort of counter march to pride last year around stonewall she and her group, the Reclaim Pride Coalition, are actually, they were organizing a repeat march this year in person. And uh, in some of the reporting that I read about these digital pride events, uh, she's quoted and, and saying that her organization is planning a counter digital event as well to counter the the what the traditional pride event um the so so she believes it she and her organization believe it is very important to bring that spirit of of uh of activism and that spirit of revolution into a digital space as well even though you can't do the march in person and she's quoted in one of the pieces as saying it certainly will not be integrated with the regular digital pride because that's the same old corporatized crowd doing what i'm sure will be a very corporatized 24-hour broadcast <laughs> which is great work work and northrop it's an anti-queer commodification at the same time i'd be interested in seeing if if they're monetizing it in some other way because end of the day queer get your coin and if these platforms are going to they're going to get people onto the platform to view the thing you might as well you might as well somehow work within that or or subvert that to get yourself some of that coin because they're going to be things like twitch things like youtube they're going to be making money off of you facebook is going to be making money off of you as you stream these things it makes sense for you to try to get some of that but at the same time it's not like we need sponsored by chase we don't need sponsored by the the police or anything like that there are there are ways to monetize that utilize these systems i'm totally going off track tangenting I'm, I'm thinking about content creation all the time now too <laughs> so that actually brings up an interesting point which is a, an, an, a counter point to this conversation about about what pride is for and what pride uh, does um pride reasons are pride events aren't just events that celebrate queerness they also serve for a lot of lgbtq organizations around the country as a very important fundraising component for their work and we're not talking about large ones we're talking about like small community organizations pride events in areas allow them to connect with new people to raise funds to and, and for a lot of those organizations the money that they raise at a pride event or around pride activities funds a decent amount of what they do during the year and um Right now, those organizations, which are 
which are incredibly important now more than ever because they're doing the actual work of helping LGBTQ people on the ground right now, especially like the elderly and LGBTQ youth. Those organizations are now going to be missing a very valuable opportunity to raise money to continue those activities. Uh, uh, Cleve Jones, who is a, a legendary queer activist, had uh, a lot of things to say about this in particular and wanted to make sure that Pride events continue because of that uh, that particular importance. Uh, here he's quoted in one of the pieces I read as saying, we need to have some sort of celebration, but it also needs to be one about getting to work and protecting people's lives and protecting these advances we have made as a community. And uh, so I like... Yeah, while philosophically we do want to have like deep discourse conversations about what pride should be and what the DNA of pride should be, but that that corporate side and that like again capitalism comes into the picture again. Again, that side is still necessary and important because the 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 economic work of pride goes to maintain the healthy ecosystem of small LGBTQ organizations around the country. And that's why I'm arguing for both. Both should exist. Both should respect each other, but also understand the limits of each other. Whereas this counter-queer liberation exists in that revolutionary and radical space, they also do not have the monetary funds nor the just knowledge and awareness that these larger spaces and celebrations have. Vice versa, those larger celebrations don't have that revolutionary and very necessary progressive feeling to them. So both are lacking in one way or another, and both pragmatically and ideologically speaking, and both need each other in order to survive, to be perfectly honest. And I think that a lot of people don't really recognize that, and a lot of people don't necessarily agree with that or understand that nuance that messiness and that's kind of where i live whereas i'm more keen to support the underground or alternative pride festivals as opposed to the commodified and monetized versions i still recognize why it exists and why it's important i i still recognize why that that level of visibility and that level that kind of a a megaphone of of queerness is really important today yeah, and it's interesting that you use the word messy because that was that's actually a word I was just thinking about and I wanted to talk. I just saw a messy man. <laughs> I was going to try to find a way to make that quote, but yes, um, yes, absolutely. I just saw a messy man. Um, but I think like that's like a, a thing that our conversations lately seem to keep coming back to is the the messiness of being queer today and not just you on only fans but like not the general you not you in specific i was gonna say i just have a twitter <laughs> I, I have not monetized my nudes <laughs> um but there there is something about this particular moment that really like it's really queerness is a very messy thing right now it exists in all these contradictory spaces and in these contradictory ways with compelling arguments for all of those paths for queerness to take and uh and and each individual person can experience queerness in a radically different way and express that queerness and live that monetize it or not um and so like getting down to that core there's, there's nothing simple or clean cut about being queer maybe there never was there probably never was maybe that's like ultimately what queerness is like well, yeah, it's that's supposed what I was, to be messy. That's what I was saying last week. It's something you can't define. So 
these attempts at defining it or these attempts at, at creating the ultimate version of it is moot to begin with because it's something you cannot define. So it's not something you should try to define as a queer space or whatever. Yeah. And, and I think that also goes like to identity too. I mean, I've certainly in the last couple of years have experienced queerness as an identity as a very messy space. And I'm just talking about our basement. I was going to say, speaking of messy spaces, can I go back to the basement? <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, I'm very interested to see how the the Global Pride event turns out. I'll certainly be checking it out and other digital Pride events. One thing I think that's interesting about these is that we will be able to experience Pride in that we Prides we would never be able to go to, and we'll be able to sort of see Pride being expressed in places that would not be accessible to us. And I mean, some kind of facsimile of it. Sure, at least. like I think that's going to be like an interesting component of a global Pride that's viewable online. Well, and I think this 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 feels like maybe another conversation altogether, and maybe we don't have the time or energy to get into it. But another thing to be considerate of and just to be aware of is that by no longer taking place in a physical space, there's also not just the technological lack of access, like people who don't have the access to the technology, but also people who maybe have access to the technology but aren't in a space where they can utilize said technology in a safe way to participate in these things. So that's kind of sad. Whereas like maybe you could say, oh, I'm going out with my friends and you would go to a queer pride celebration or like a gay bar or something like that. That's not really a thing anymore. That's not really a... That's that's not something that we can do in this current Pride season. It was something that I thought of because I had been reading a lot of tweets of of these professors who were worried about and and were trying to combat this this whole final semester on Zoom and how a lot of their courses, especially in queer and gender studies, they talk about and actively engage in materials that some students may live in households where they don't want them talking about that. They don't want them thinking about that. And while they do it on campus, it's fine because what are they doing on campus? Who cares? Who knows? But in their own home, it's harder for them to engage with the work and to talk about it openly because they just aren't in an accepting space. So even if they're not saying, oh, I am this, they are just talking about the yellow wallpaper or they're just talking about, um, I don't know, Blue is a warm color, or whatever that book is called. Um, they're they're talking about these things, and that could be unacceptable, and that could actually be dangerous for them. So, thinking about people who may have access to the technology but aren't in a safe space to utilize it for this is also a thing that we need to be aware of. And that's another question: is how do we make sure that they are included, or they are heard, or they are otherwise acknowledged um, in this time? Yeah, I think that's going to be an ongoing question in general. I mean, I certainly don't think that we will, uh, when we are able, go back to a world without all of this digital experience. Uh, I, I think that it has been uh, too successful and I think for some people too profitable for us to eliminate this this digital social world that we've created during these months whenever we do get to go back to normal. So I think there are a lot of conversations to be had about how the conversations that we had about how do we make those physical spaces accessible to people and safe, how are we going to make the digital spaces also accessible and safe or a conversation we'll continue to have. The conversation continues. 
So, as always, thank you so much for listening to Bearded Fruit. We are glad that you're sticking around. Um, if you would like to find us online to say uh, that you liked an episode or you have some suggestions about an episode that you'd like something you'd like to talk about, reach out to us. You can find us on the web at beardedfruit.com or you can find the podcast on Twitter at beardedfruitpod. You can also find Neil and I online. I'm on Twitter all the time at cdagleorians. And I'm Neil Makes Things on Twitter my website and also venmo (laughs) that too Uh, you can find the podcast on spotify google play music and itunes subscribe or follow us in those places and share the podcast with anybody you think would really dig it and uh, we will see you next week digital bot stuff digital bot stuff bot stuff in the digital world That's what the Venmo's for. Dot org.